was my line, Jeff. Thanks, though. Uh, this will be Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, lastly they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, and when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. You may now be seated. Good morning, my name is Joey, and I don't know if my microphone's working, so let's try that again. Good morning. Like I said, I'm Joey, and I don't really know how to start this sermon. Um, and the reason for that is because we're talking about envy today. Envy, as we're going through the series, uh, Songs of Rescue, Summer in the Psalms, we're picking different psalms, the emotions then that they express and that are then processed through in prayer before God. And we've chosen envy for this morning. Normally, when I begin putting a sermon together, uh, I try to find some sort of story or something from my own personal experience that kind of highlights what I'm going to talk about or at least motivates you to listen for a couple more minutes so that maybe I can keep your attention for a little while. And uh, I racked my brain for a story about envy, and it felt a little weird sharing a story from someone else's life. Like, I had this friend, you know, so, but I didn't want to share any stories from my own life about envy because... It's really kind of petty. Envy is. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If it's brought out into the open and exposed for what it is, it's like, really, you were envious of that? 
Envy, the thing about it is that if I'm going to admit to it, if I'm going to confess to being envious of someone, I'm in the very act admitting that I consider myself to be less than someone else. Otherwise, I wouldn't desire their life or what they have that I don't have. So it's kind of hard to honestly share about something you're envious of. There's, there's even things in my own heart, secret envies, that I've tried to share with close friends and confidence and even had a hard time saying it out loud because of what it makes me look like. It takes guts. It takes courage to admit to something like this and then to process it. So I'm thankful for this particular psalm, Psalm 73, and the kind of brutal gut-level honesty uh, that the psalmist gives us in talking about his envy and then processing it before good, before God, which is why it's good that we're looking at it today as we talk about envy. He uses just plain spoken honesty and more courage than I have to admit what's going on in his own heart. Uh, so as we go through Psalm 73, I'd invite you to turn there with me if you haven't already. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, or you can Google Psalm 73 or pull the black Bible out from uh, under the seat in front of you. It's on page 574 if you want to follow along. Uh, you may remember from the introduction of this whole series, we talked about how the Psalms are not, uh, they're not just high, lofty, doctrinal expositions of some aspect of God's character or his will or something like that. They are songs. The Psalms are poetry. They're full of the varieties of emotional experience. They're about how the heart works, you know, about how we all feel sometimes. Uh, one of the early church fathers wrote that within the Psalms are represented and portrayed in all their great variety the movements of the human soul. It's like a picture in which you see yourself portrayed and seeing may understand and consequently form yourself upon the pattern given. Whatever your particular need or trouble, from this book you can select a form of words to fit it so that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. The point of us studying these psalms is not so we can read the psalm and learn from the psalm. The point of us studying this is so we can read the psalm and then do the psalm. So that we too can take the various emotions from human experience and process them before God in prayer as the Psalms teach us to. So let's jump into Psalm 73 together. I'm, I'm excited to walk through this one with you. Psalm 73 starts out as a matter-of-fact declaration of God's character. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, but very quickly, the psalmist confesses his own situation. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, you don't talk about uh, stumbling or slipping unless you're usually climbing something or at least moving forward, moving ahead. Uh, one kind of more metaphorical translation of this passage puts it like this. But as for me, I came so close to the edge of the cliff. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. You have a picture of somebody just clinging to the edge of a rock face, attempting not to fall to their peril. He, he's talking about a crisis of faith. Psalm, the psalm writer is struggling with his faith at this moment. He's having a hard time putting it all together. One pastor described it as an experience of spiritual vertigo. 
Like when you're standing at the edge of a cliff and looking down, or you're on the, the sky deck in Chicago and there's 1,300 feet of just air underneath you and your stomach gets a little swirly funny and you start to feel lightheaded. It's like that, but for your faith. What his eyes are seeing is telling him something different than what his faith is telling him. And he doesn't know what to do or where to go next. Spiritual vertigo. And, and this kind of crisis of faith, uh, this kind of doubt, it's not a rare occurrence. It doesn't just happen to a few people who don't have a very strong faith. It can happen to anybody. I've been there. Many of you have been there and told me about it. Some of you are there right now. So as we continue to examine this psalm together, just, I want you to keep one thing in mind. Uh, we wouldn't have this psalm if he hadn't experienced this crisis of faith and then gone through it. I mean, if he'd experienced the spiritual vertigo and then walked away from his faith, we'd never know. There wouldn't be any song at all. It would be like, yeah, God is great, but I walked away. And nobody would sing that song. So we wouldn't know it. It's only because he had this crisis of faith and then came through it that we get this amazing song. His doubt fueled his faith, caused him to question, and led him on a search for new resources that could strengthen his faith. So the doubt is good, it's propelling him forward, but he also admits and recognizes that his doubt came because of his own sin. Spiritual crisis was brought about because of his sin. If we take a look at verse 3, we can see why. He says it pretty plainly and um, with more guts than I have. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why had I almost stumbled and fallen and, and, and shipwrecked my faith? I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And what I appreciate about this guy is that he doesn't try to cover up his spiritual crisis with some sort of intellectual explanation. You know, he doesn't say, I almost lost my faith when I was contemplating the paradox of divine foreknowledge and human freedom, and I just couldn't put it together. You know, he doesn't say, I just don't understand how bad things can happen to good people over there somewhere else that I've never met. He was experiencing a real crisis of faith, and I want to be clear if you're struggling with your faith because of those questions or other questions like that, that is, that is not a bad thing to be struggling with those questions. What I'm, what I'm trying to make clear is that his doubts, our doubts, the crisis that he's going through, they always come from an experience. They're never purely intellectual. We rarely, if ever, think our way into a crisis of faith. There's always some experience that precipitates it. One of my friends is struggling right now with a faith crisis of doubt. After going to his construction site every day, and every day seeing the same two kids from the house next door who were basically just left to raise themselves, wander over and talk to anybody who would talk to them, just dying for human interaction and some adult to tell them that they're valuable. He said, how, how could God, how could a good God let kids be raised like that? How could he put up with that? And the experience of that injustice then led him to put together, well, led him into this kind of a, a bit of vertigo of my faith and what I'm seeing do not line up. What am I supposed to think? See, crises of faith always come from an experience. And just as my friend is not going to be able to think his way out, of that crisis, neither is the psalmist. We're going to watch as he has to experience his way out of it. Because he's facing something similar because of an experience of injustice, 
he's begun to question his faith. His struggle, though, unlike my friend whose story I just told, his, the psalmist's struggle is because of sin, because of some sinful tendencies in his heart. He said in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. His crisis of faith did not come from a disinterested intellectual observation about the nature of poverty and the nature of wealth in some faraway part of the world. His crisis of faith came when he saw people getting a piece of the pie that he wanted. He said, God, why are you doing that? When what he saw didn't square with what his faith told him, that God blesses the righteous and curses the unrighteous. It seemed to be the other way around, and his whole faith is now swirling. Listen to the way, verses 4 through 12, that he describes these people who are prospering. One commentator said, this is basically a timeless description of this kind of, these, these kind of people. Uh, just some of these phrases, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which was a, a compliment back then, I guess. Um, they're not in trouble. They're not stricken. Uh, he talks about their sin. Violence covers them as a garment. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff. They speak with malice. They threaten oppression. He talks about their, even their blasphemy against God. They set their mouths against the heavens. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? And you would expect someone described that way to be suffering for what they're doing. But no, they are always at ease. They increase in riches. This guy is having a real problem with the way that God has chosen to distribute material goods. You know, I think he always believed God blesses the righteous. He gives material blessings to those who are serving him most faithfully, and he can't square that belief with what his eyes are seeing. But like I said, and like most of us, the injustice of that didn't occur to him until it happened to him. He was fairly disinterested when it was off somewhere else and he never saw it. But once it started happening to him, then God is not being fair. It's envy. Envy, the emotion that we're considering this morning. But not just an emotion in the Christian tradition. Envy has always been considered one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, not called that because it's somehow extra worse than the others, but uh, because it's a root condition of the heart out of which grows other sins. And as we see in the psalm, out of the envy in his heart grew his doubt and his spiritual despair. So just to make sure we all know what we're talking about, I want to define envy. Envy is not just wanting something that someone else has. Uh, that's plain old covetousness or greed. Uh, envy is when you want the thing someone else has. But if you can't have it, then you don't want them to have it either. It was like when we were kids and there was one cookie left and my brother grabbed it and licked one side and set it down. So I grabbed it and licked the other side and put it back on the plate. I was like, if I can't have the cookie, neither can you. And I don't know what we did with it. We probably gave it to one of my other brothers and didn't tell him. <laughs> but the point of envy is not just like, you have a cookie, I want one too. It's, I want that cookie and I do not want you to have it. If I can't have it, neither can you. See, the... the the kind of plainly greedy or covetous person, they just want more of a thing. Or maybe the thing that someone else has, but they just want more of it, a, more money, better car, whatever. The envious person wants to take it away from the other person, especially because of the way it affects the social ranking that is evidenced by those things. 
Joseph Epstein is a prominent essayist and short story writer, and he wrote this uh, little book on envy uh, for a series on the seven deadly sins commissioned by the New York Public Library. Uh, he describes envy, uh, he calls it the only deadly sin that is no fun at all, and um, describes it like this. Yeah, that was kind of a slow burn, that one. Um, we're, on the right, we're on the same track here. He describes it like this. Why does he have it and not me? That is the chief, perhaps the only question for the envious, who have a deeper, if only because more self-centered, sense of injustice than others. They also have a restless competitiveness, which will not cease nagging away at them until they feel themselves clearly established as first among unequals. They feel a fundamental unfairness lashed up with any good in which they are not the most favored recipients. Why should the next fellow have the more capacious house, beautiful wife, better job, sweeter life than I? The answer is clear. He, the son of a, just leave that blank, should not, he says. And the psalmist makes the comparison game clear as well, if you look at verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. The exact opposite of the way he described them in verse 12. These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's suffering from an acute case of why not me? Why, why not me? He's saying, look, God, here's all the things I've done. I've been morally pure. I've been innocent. I have worked hard to keep myself blameless before you. And what have I gotten out of the deal? I've been stricken and rebuked. Every day, it seems like someone is attacking me and I've got nothing to show for it. I'm constantly being belittled and put down. But those guys, the arrogant, the wicked, those guys who stab each other in the backs to get ahead, those guys who oppress their employees and anyone who's beneath them, those guys who seem to have it all, you know, the beautiful people that everybody's jealous of, those people who get away with everything, they always have every new toy and thousands of followers online and no end of money and no cares in the world. Why are they the ones who get your blessings and not me? They don't deserve their lives. I deserve their life. Why do you love them more than you love me? It's kind of awkward to read because it sounds like what happens in my head and probably what happens in your head too. And it's here that we can see envy's destructive nature come through. When you're envious of someone, it ultimately and always comes back to God. At some point, if you follow the envy train far enough, you get to the point where you say, God, why did you stack the deck against me? It's your fault. And that's what the psalmist is expressing. He's angry because God is allowing him to suffer while others prosper. And it's causing some real deep angst in him. You can see it come through in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, a task burdened with grief. He couldn't see a way out. It's a real crisis, a real struggle. The guy who wrote this psalm, Asaph, was a priest, a fairly high up priest, and in charge of most of the music at the temple during David's time. How is a guy like that supposed to get up in public or even in private and tell people, I'm really struggling to see if this is worth anything? It's worth everything. That's why in verse 15, he said, if I, if I had said, I will speak thus, if I will say all this out loud, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. It's like, I can't tell anyone 
because I'll destroy my lifelong commitments and shipwreck the faith of who knows how many other people. But I can't keep it inside because it's gnawing at me. It's wearisome. There's grief there. So what is he supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when envy has taken root in our hearts and begun to rot away our contentedness and our joy? What are we supposed to do when we look around at people in the seat next to us, in the house next to us, and think, why do they deserve their life? The psalmist teaches us to take it to God. Take it to God. So let's look at how he processes his envy. Verse 16 and 17. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And in the sanctuary of God, three things happened. Uh, Three fundamental redefinitions of the way he saw the object of his envy, the way he saw himself, and the way he saw God. We're going to walk through and see those things coming out of the psalm uh, here in the time that we have left. Those three things he sees that he does, we need to do as well when we find ourselves gripped by envy. We need to recognize what we envy for what it really is. We need to reconsider who we are and rediscover what God is to us. We have to recognize what we envy for what it really is, reconsider who we are, and rediscover what God is to us. Let's take these one at a time. Asaph says the first thing he realized when he went into the sanctuary of God, verse 17, uh, then I discerned their end. In other words, having gone into the service and been reminded of who God is and how he relates to us, uh, he realized once again that despite all appearances to the contrary, uh, the arrogant and the wicked will not come out okay in the end. He describes it in verses 18 and 19. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. See, they're not as sure-footed as they appear to be. He thought he was about to slip, but they're standing on a slippery slope about to plunge to their ruin. And they're not as trouble-free as they appear. He says, terrors, sudden catastrophes can still sweep them away. Uh, Their riches don't exempt them from difficulty. And neither is God impotent before them as they had claimed. Uh, The wicked and the arrogant are as much of a threat to God as a nightmare phantom is to us when we wake up and realize it was all a dream. Essentially, the psalmist here is looking at them closely, looking at the thing he envied and asking himself, should I really be envious of that? Should I really be envious of that? Am I seeing it correctly? And the answer to his question is, of course, no, you shouldn't. They're not as well off as they appear to be. But if the psalm had ended right here, it it would not be a very good psalm. We would essentially have a guy saying, God, I was so envious of the wicked until I realized you were going to kill them all. And then I felt great. If, If we stop there, we have problems. That kind of thinking doesn't lead us to a humility fueled by a recognition of who God is and, and who, he, who we are. Instead, it would lead us into a prideful sense of superiority over those who don't follow God. Uh, and that's not where the psalm or the psalmist or God wants us to end up. So while this is helpful in combating envy, don't use that as your only method. You'll just feed pride 
which is even worse. See, I quoted uh, Joseph Epstein's description of envy earlier, and I think he does a really good job of describing what envy feels like, but he does a really bad job of giving us a solution to it. This is his, his way of overcoming his own envy. He says, I have become resigned to my middling station in life. I have had enough of the world's honors, and while I have an astonishingly high threshold for praise, I find I can carry on well enough without a regular supply of tributes, kudos, and awards. I've not accumulated that much wisdom, but I have come to know that the world, in its judgment of achievement, hasn't shown great accuracy. And so without too much anguish, I can accept its negligence in not fully recognizing my talent. Now you realize what he's done there. Envy is a comparison game where I measure my social standing based on external evidences. And he's saying, the only way to win at envy is just change how you define social success. He's saying, well, if I were actually being praised by these critics, that would be obvious, that would be you know, evidence of the fact that I'm not that great. The fact that they don't recognize my genius means I'm amazing and now I'm, I'm fine. So he's just redefining what there is to be envious about. It doesn't really help in the long run. We can't just take that path of trying to redefine what makes us envious. We actually have to look at the thing we're talking about that we're envious of. and Should I really be envious of it? Am I actually seeing it clearly? It's a vital first step, but we can't stop there. If we do, we end up becoming pridefully arrogant. We have to move beyond this step and reconsider who we are and rediscover what God is to us. So to reconsider who we are, we need to recognize part of the problem with envy is that it makes the world into a battleground for self-worth. If you want to unlearn envy, then we have to redefine where we get our self-worth from. And there's two different ways we get self-worth. There's the one type that comes from having your talents and your abilities appraised. Someone tells you, that was a great job you did on this project you just finished. And this is the kind of worth you feel when you know you are doing objectively good work. You're doing a good job at the things you're trying to accomplish. But there's a second type of, self, a second type of self-worth uh, that comes from knowing that you are deeply and profoundly and unconditionally loved, whether you do well or not. This is like the dad telling his kid, I know the baseball game didn't turn out the way you want it to, but I want you to know that I love you no matter how well you play. That's the good self-worth. The bad one is, I know the game didn't turn out very well. No ice cream for you today. It's a self-worth, unconditional self-worth that is not dependent on our performance. It's dependent on our humanity, on the fact that we bear dignity because we bear the image of God. And you know, it's easy enough to talk about the two separately, but it's really hard to separate them in experience. Anyone who's been evaluated for their performance knows this. When we bought our first house, we took an extra month or two before we moved in so I could do some work fixing it up. And uh, my parents drove out. My dad brought a van load of tools that I still haven't given back. And I got to show them around the house, you know, talk about what I wanted to fix up, uh, tell them about the deal we got and how the negotiations went and all that. And I was, I was showing off for my dad. 
And after my parents left, I was talking to my mom on the phone. They were driving home, or it might have been the next day. I don't remember. And uh, I hadn't gone into the conversation intending to say this. I didn't even know that this was what I had been wanting to hear and never heard. I just somehow in the process of this conversation, I said, you know, Mom, the whole weekend you guys were here, Dad never once said, I'm proud of you. Good job. Because we unconsciously combine our or confuse people's appraisal of our work with their appraisal of our worth. Especially when it comes from someone that you dearly love and want to value you. The next day my dad called me, he's like, so I hear you were looking for an evaluation of your work. I was like, well, thanks dad. Dads, you know, sons need their dads to tell them they're proud of them. We had a good talk. But it's so easy, isn't it, to to confuse appraisal of my work with evaluation of my worth. I need those things to be separate. I, I need to hear, well done. But even more than that, I need to hear, I love you. You have value to me. Oftentimes when I'm talking with students, you know, we'll talk about trying to succeed, be worried about not being able to succeed in college, and, and we'll talk about, you know, hearing, we want to hear from God, well done, good and faithful servant. But that is a straitjacket if you haven't first heard, I love you, I value you, you are mine. Otherwise, you'll spend your whole life running from person to person, just in a string of people-pleasing, trying to make everyone tell you that was a good job, thinking that when they say good job, what they're really saying is I love you. And if you can't separate the two, if you can't find your self-worth in a, in a non-contingent expression of value, meaning if you can't find your self-worth in someone telling you, it doesn't matter what you do, I love you, you'll never have a worth that is solid enough to fail on, you know, to go out there and actually put yourself at risk and, and perform and not do well. We need it from our close friends, from our parents, from a spouse. We need it even more from God. The psalmist had to relocate, rediscover who he is in God's eyes, change where he got his self-worth from. And it comes through really clearly in uh, verses 21 through 24. These are my favorite verses of the psalm, though you will never find them, like, painted on pallet wood on Etsy. Unfortunately, I looked, and nobody has these verses. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Sounds like if Hallmark were going to use that, it would be like on an apology card, right? Like, and then I'm sorry for whatever I did. Now, he says, when my soul was embittered, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. You know, he's admitting that his envy at core was a sin against God. It was sin because he had decided himself who was worthy of receiving God's good, God's good gifts and who wasn't. And obviously he was worthy, but not getting them. And they were not worthy, but getting them. It made him angry with God. Fuming with injustice, his envy embittered his soul. Brutish and ignorant, acting like a beast, like a feral animal, bearing its fangs at God. We should consider that description a warning, too, of what happens to us if we manage to win the envy game. 
Because you can win at envy. You can collect all the toys and trinkets that make you feel better than everyone around you. You can be as high as you could possibly go, but lose because you've cut yourself off from true love relationships with other people and with God. You can win at envy, but you can lose at being human, which is not what God wants for us. So I'm thankful that his grace shines through in that little word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, no, no matter what the psalmist did, no matter how beastly and brutish he was before God, still God is continually with him. He's describing their relationship as one of, of close friends, like a child holding their father's hand. God continues to guide. And the psalmist knows whatever happens in the future, he will be received into a greater glory than the wicked and arrogant could ever know. It comes through really clearly in the next couple of verses, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail. They may come to their end. I may come to the end of my life. But God is my strength, literally my rock. God is the strength, the rock of my heart, and my portion forever. God is his rock, his firm foundation, his, his place of ref, refuge, his unchanging, unchangeable, secure foothold. If you're an experienced climber and you go climbing and slip, stumble, fall, almost, I'd say 100% of the time, the reason you fell is you trusted the wrong foothold. You slipped on, you, you put your weight on something that couldn't hold you. He's saying, look at the beginning, I almost slipped. I was hanging on the edge of the cliff until I remembered that God is the only solid rock I can stand on. He's the only firm foundation. I mean, what is there to be envious of? He has the only thing he needs, the deep and profound and unconditional love of God. Not based on what he does or doesn't do, but based on who he is, a child of God. Which is exactly what you and I, what we all need if we're going to escape the envy trap. If we're going to keep ourselves from comparing ourselves to that person in the next cubicle who got a raise for doing worse work, to that person in the next house whose house looks beautiful, of course he's $100,000 in debt, to that person in the next pew who looks like they have their whole life together and whose faith seems something for us to be jealous of. If we're going to escape the envy trap, we have to find a significant sense of self-worth in knowing we are unconditionally loved by God. So to escape envy, we don't just take a closer look at the thing we're envying to see if it's really worth it. We also have to take a close look at ourselves. Where is our worth coming from? We have to find it in God, in knowing how much we are loved by him. It's, it's only then that the world ceases to be a battleground for love, a zero-sum game where if you're getting love, it means I'm not. And instead, it becomes an arena, like a canvas in which you can paint love, freely express the love you've gotten from God the Father through Jesus, his son, that, that love that's being perfected in you by the Holy Spirit. And finally, we need to rediscover what God is to us. So look at what you're envying, look at where your worth is coming from, and look at what God is to us. The psalmist his crisis of faith came when he wasn't getting what he wanted. No pain, healthy bodies, no trouble, the ability to do whatever he wanted, the ease, the riches. But by the time we get to the end of the psalm, 
uh, his perspective on what he really wants has changed. Verse 25, he said, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And he finishes the psalm with verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. And he's not saying good like consolation prize, like participation trophy, like you didn't get any nice things, but hey, you get to be near God. That's kind of cool. He's saying, no, if, there's, if I could line up every possible good that this life has to offer, the only one that matters, the only one that, that I need, the only one I absolutely have to have is to be near God. For me, it is good to be near God. It's the one thing he can't do without. This, uh, this last Palm Sunday... After lunch, we were home sitting around our little table, uh, Jenna and Anna, our six-year-old, and I uh, eating lunch, and uh, in the Sunday school class Anna had been in, they talked about what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to accept Christ as your Savior. So she told us, we kind of got into this conversation where she said something like, well, I've always followed Jesus. We told her, no, it's a decision you have to make. Um, You don't just sort of slide into it because you're a preacher's kid. You, You have to make the decision for yourself. And she said, well, I don't remember, I made the decision, but I don't remember when, can I do it again? And we said, yes, you can do it right now with us. We'll remember it. Palm Sunday, 2017, we can celebrate. So she prayed. It, it was great. Um, we immediately called some friends and family to, to let them know. And uh, one of the persons we called, Anna's on the phone telling this person what she had just done. And the person said, Anna, that's so great. Now you'll spend heaven, eternity in heaven, with us. And I thought, no. That is not the, I mean, yes, that's a good thing, but that is not the point. That is not the point at all. You do not want to spend eternity with me. I am very boring. There's not much below the surface. Three weeks in, you've exhausted it. Pray for my wife. It's, that's not the point, but it's so easy to confuse, to forget that our faith in God is not about getting good things from him, not even getting heaven from him. That, that's a bonus. What we get is God. What we get is a relationship with him. He's the good news. Heaven isn't the good news. He's the good news. Heaven is just the room that we're in when we be with God. When we be with God. That was bad grammar. <laughs> I'm a little excited. It, it's like, it, it's like a, a bride on her wedding day walking in and being like, this church is amazing. And forgetting the guy down at the end of the aisle. The point of our faith is to be with God. It is good to be near Him, wherever that is. Whether it's in heaven or, if it, or on earth now, whether everything's going great or not going at all. The bottom line is we have to rediscover what God is to us, that He is our greatest good, not the things He gives us. The psalmist straight up admitted, you know what, God, all in vain I've kept myself pure. He's saying, I didn't want you. I wanted all the things you could give me. And when I want all the things God can give me, I can't help but compare myself to all the things God is giving someone else, saying, how come he doesn't love me as much as he loves that person? The bottom line is, God is our ultimate good. It's only when he is our ultimate good and he is the foundation of our self-worth can we properly look at the world around us and say, you know what? I don't have to envy. Not pridefully say, you know what? God loves me. It doesn't matter what he does with you. But look at the world and say, you know what? I don't understand it. I don't know why God loves me. 
That's enough. And now I can love other people, and I can rejoice when they get good things. I don't have to be angry over other people's good. I don't have to look at the wicked and the arrogant and just like, why don't I get anything? Because God has already given me the only thing I need and the one thing I can never do without. The extent to which we can live in that truth is the extent to which we can say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And what do I desire on earth beside you? And that is worth painting on some driftwood and hanging on your wall. Father, you have given us everything good that we need because you've given us yourself. And I pray that you would help us to draw near you in worship and prayer and silence and solitude in celebration and joy in processing our emotions before you in prayer. Help us to come into your presence to reach for your hand to experience your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.